0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi Dan, uh, welcome to Practical History. I'm so happy that you were able to make it today. Patrick, thank you for having me on your show. So, we introduce yourself publicly as a historian investor. And this is very intriguing to a lot of people. It will be intriguing. So, let me introduce you by mentioning a few stages in, um, in your career. Just to give us a sense of where you're coming from. In 1984, you had a PhD in Soviet history at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And then, for three years, you worked actually in academia as an assistant professor of history at the University of Wyoming in Wyoming. And then, I'm telling you in your LinkedIn profile, you reappeared know, in York City as a senior analyst at August Research, where you worked for three years. Meanwhile, we did a postdoc at Hoover, a prestigious institution in California. And you also published a book in 1998 uh, titled Storming the Heavens. And this is uh, an academic book about the narrowly solid organization with promoting atheism. And now, in 1999, you started working as a senior portfolio analyst at Federated Members. well, you've know, also been a very prolific writer. You wrote three books on finance, including your forthcoming book, *The Ownership Dividend*, uh, and uh, many publications in Soviet history. I saw that you continue publishing in Soviet history. I, I noticed that you had a piece in the *Journal Kritika a few years ago. So I'd love to know more about the these these entanglements between finance and history. I had a lot of questions, and I think what uh, what what, you, what you'll be able to share with us will be very useful and inspiring to a lot of people who are eyeing dreaming this connection. So, questions about your choices, your experiences, and possibly uh, any of this for our people. Sure. So that, there's a lot there. That's a yes. that's a long question.
0: Let me let me simplify it a little bit by kind of breaking my adult life into two sections. It is the the historian of the Soviet Union, modern Russia. It was Soviet Union when I started, modern Russia when I ended. Uh, and then I've ended up for the last, call it 20 uh, some years uh, working in asset management as a portfolio manager. I'm still kind of a historian because I write about it, but I've had two careers. And the part that your your timeline had some dates uh, right, some dates wrong, but the, for the purposes of people understanding it and perhaps trying to figure it out if they're how to apply humanities to business or making a okay. career transition, it really was a break from one to the other. Okay. And if you notice, the part of your timeline that's correct is that there's a couple years missing. Right. And I had a series of very short-term, very painful, very difficult, very unsuccessful jobs. Okay. I remain friends with several of the people from that period, but uh-huh. it certainly wasn't based on the, my productivity uh, in those first business jobs. So I I remained in academia, uh, until 1997. Uh, my academic book came out in 1998, but I left academia in 1997 after a PhD and a couple of years teaching and a postdoc and and getting the note from the publisher. Uh Something that, you know, a lot of young academics really want to do. Finish up, understood, get that PhD. I was fortunate enough to get a Position and I was fortunate enough to get a postdoc, and I was fortunate enough to get a book published at a, mm. a, a high-quality uh, academic press. So as soon as all of that happened, uh, I I then made the shift. I had already been having, I have to say, and this is relevant also to academic communities, some doubts. Mm. Yeah, there were. That's a big one. Yeah, there are real doubts, and they always exists when you're committing to a career as to whether, really just to put it in blunt terms, the supply and demand of that career is going to work Mm -hmm. for you or not work for you. Mm -hmm. And with the Soviet Union collapsing, Russia collapsing, um, I could see where enrollments were going, job listings were going. I had entered the profession when the Cold War funding and infrastructure of Cold War funding and um, university support for this career line was Mm -hmm. was, uh, full. And mm-hmm. by the time I came out ready with a you know new PhD and a, a high quality book, the world had changed dramatically, and mm-hmm. I could see that. And I uh, I I said, well, I, I probably should consider doing something else. I'll probably be okay if I want to stay here, but I don't know if I'd mm-hmm. be the happiest camper in the world. Mm-hmm. I also have to say, Patrick, I was studying Russian history. Mm-hmm. You may have observed, as will most of your listeners, that Russian history is hard. It's hard on the soul and uh, it remains hard on the soul. And the last 25 years of Russian history has not made it any easier on the soul. And sure. I admire my colleagues and friends who have remained in the profession as studying modern Russia, trying to explain Russia to itself, to them, and to the modern world. But it's, it's hard because it's, it's a hard place. And I, I have to admit, I wondered whether I had it in me to study mm-hmm. a place that is so challenging um, for a, a full career. So, in any case, the the lines let you know aligned. The stars aligned, and I decided to move on. What is the point of of these conversations? And I've given a number of these kind of job talks about the pitfalls of making a career transition. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, in 1997, I was 33 years old. I'd never opened an Excel spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Never <laughs> opened an Excel spreadsheet. I had no accounting and no business experience. Uh So I spent the next two years absolutely miserable, uh, taking on-the-job learning. I did not want to go back and get an MBA Uh It's the late 1990s. Uh, I am, as I said, kind of multiple jobs, um, learning as I go, an on-the-job MBA, uh, uh, desperately trying to catch up with people 10 years younger than me uh, It was not not a pleasant period So for those of you looking at career transitions a don't wait until you're 33 B before you do it know how Excel works and take a few online accounting courses. We'll circle back to uh, suggestions but mm-hmm. I, I you know uh, a little bit of insight into those uh, into those suggestions. So I spent two years transitioning. I did get find a kind of a low level but proper much appreciated, pretty good enjoyable intellectually rewarding job. In 1999, after two years, uh, and I want to give credit to John Eid, the CEO and president of that business. It's called Argus Research. It's an independent mm-hmm. stock research firm uh, working in New York. And I worked there for three years from 1999 from to 2002, and then I, I ended up at Federated. But mm-hmm. Argus is a really interesting platform for academics and humanities majors who might be looking... Uh, to something in business because Argus as an independent research shop puts a premium on communication on written communication and research. Mm -hmm. You you need to know your stuff. You need to know the accounting. You need to know whatever you need to know uh, about the particular businesses that you're looking at. But that can be learned, Mm -hmm. but at least it's been in my experience the last 25 years, writing well is not something that's taught in the business schools. Mm-hmm. Writing well is not taught in the accounting programs. Writing mm-hmm. well and communicating is not taught well in the finance programs. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Argus and these independent research shops and other, I'll call them almost satellite businesses around Wall Street, require people who can do research and write and conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Now, they have to research and write and conceptualize about business issues, about cash flows, about balance sheets. So, that that's an acquired skill, and if you don't acquire it... it it's a bust. But they come to the table with more of those skills than maybe they appreciate. So uh, that's, again, a lead into what I think is one of the uh, positive elements of this story uh, is that uh, the, your audience has something to give. They may not realize it, but they do. In any case, I spent two years uh, in this difficult transition, three years getting set up at Argus, Uh, And uh, again, I'm lucky to call Johnny and a friend. We're still in touch. Uh, My wife and I were in lower Manhattan on 9-11, and after that, we decided to leave New York. And there was a small recession after 9-11, short recession, uh, but uh, there weren't too many positions available for what skill set I had then developed, which is as a stock analyst in a particular sector. But I was fortunate enough to uh, get a uh, position with Federated, now called Federated Hermes, in Pittsburgh in 2002, and I, I've been there uh, 21 years and have have moved up the ranks. Uh, but it, you can think of it as a, as a transition from <laughs> historian of modern Russia at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, Wyoming to portfolio manager and writer of finance at Federated Hermes in Pittsburgh. It wasn't that easy. It was and much I, I, easier- we don't a story like this. I imagine either, right? Yeah, this this belongs in the academic journal of irreproducible results, and and no career counselor of the right mind would suggest this as a as a as a crazy. I mean, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was it was nuts, and I was making it up as I went along. Oh. Um, but that also there is a lesson. Hopefully, we'll get okay. to about risk taking. Hmm. Uh, is a really important consideration as academics face the world and humanities people face the world. There's a a different calibration of risk in the academic world, academic thinking, and then uh, a separate calibration of reality of risk in in the the business world. So uh, much easier in the retelling Mm -hmm. uh, than it was in the doing, but uh, kind of all's well that ends well. And when I say all's well that ends well, I want to make this point. I think that when I was in academia I shared the prejudice that most of us in academia have, that we live the life of the mind and no one else does.
1: I think a lot of people think this way, true. Yeah.
0: And it's wrong. I I work with some of the smartest people I've ever met, including in academia. In business, now that's not always the case. But if you're fortunate enough, you you come across them; they come across you, and you 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 end up uh, working together. I, I'm mm-hmm. very fortunate in that, and I have kind of uh, the 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 ability to engage people in questions of the life of the mind uh, as as much as I did in academia. I would mm-hmm. argue. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a, an extreme statement for a lot of people still in academia, but I, I will stand by it. And the partial evidence in support of that conclusion is that after I got settled in the new business, I was able to start writing the books, which you very Mm -hmm. kindly reference. Folks, I do have a new book coming out. I cannot help myself. Please take a look. The Ownership Dividend, The Upcoming Paradigm Shift in the US Stock Market, coming out with Rutledge, uh, February 14th, 2024, Valentine's Day, What Will Make Your Sweetheart's Heart Beat Faster Than a Book About Capital Markets, Theory. History and future again. Nothing I can think of. Nothing can think of. So my point is the the life of the another good point of this story is the life of the mind and thinking about issues structurally, writing about them, publishing them. If that's important to you, was important to me. I still have kind of an academic DNA. Mm -hmm. That was that happened. It is doable, Um, and uh, I, I think people should not assume that the only publishing world is the is you know academic journals. Which again, I might. In a churlish moment, suggest that fewer people read than <laughs> than True. than you know is, is than some of the practitioner books that I write now are more widely read. So I I'm it, it's worked out well.
1: Um, well, thank you for this extensive uh, uh, response. I caught a couple of things. If you allow me to backtrack a little bit, I I, th- I really appreciate that you mentioned um, you know this word doubts. And also uh some of the hard moments because I think we tend to imagine very often uh, looking at CVs, uh very near transitions and kind of progressions. Whereas you you make it clear, you made it clear. And I don't wanna reopen some you know, scars here from your days trying to figure out the Excel, but but it wasn't easy, right? I mean, I mean, believe remember some of those moments where there's going through your head? Know,
0: yeah you you have doubts about your ability you're going up against 23 year olds who are who have the skill sets and so you really it does psychologically become imagine if you were walking in i i aimed for consulting firms in manhattan mm-hmm. and i was a historian from the university of wyoming with a phd in modern russian history trying to work on at my, my particular area of interest at the time was air transport so airline and air transport consulting and Imagine being on the receiving end of my call or my resume, my CV, and this was pre-internet, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the internet existed, uh, but uh, it, it, the pre-web-ish, and it was uh, a lot of phone calls and, and mail and written documents, uh, cover letters, and, and uh, resumes, and so forth. And yeah, you know, uh, slam, no response, nothing, zero, slam shut. Uh, the I, uh, tell a story. The firm that eventually hired me, I got through on the phone to the CEO of the firm, a small consulting firm, mm-hmm. and I had my not my thirty-second elevator pitch. I had my seven or eight-second elevator pitch because that was all the time okay. I was because I'd been you know hung up on many a time. And he bellowed into the phone. He still bellows with me. I, I go out to dinner with him a couple times a year now. Uh, he bellowed into the phone when I did my seven-second pitch. He said, "Yeah, I know who you are. You got nothing." And he <laughs> Clan, slam the phone down. You so got nothing. That's the sound in New York. You <laughs> got nothing, and I was dumb enough to think that was. It's a little bit like the Jim Carrey film. Do I have a chance? I forget the name of the right. film. Uh, you know, is there still a chance? I was dumb enough to think. Well, you know, at least I got him on the phone. I must have a chance. And mm-hmm. believe it or not, I didn't give up after that. And uh, one of his partners at that firm said he wanted. Someone with a humanities background because he had a bunch uh-huh. of business people, but they didn't write very well. Uh-huh. They didn't speak very well. Uh-huh. And he understood that some. he had a humanities background himself. He understood that that, uh, that would make a difference. He'd gone on and gotten an MBA and followed a traditional business path, but he was willing to take a chance on me to add kind of in a barbell fashion with his technical staff. It uh-huh. worked out terribly, uh-huh. but it was 12 months of on the job training. I was a little bit better. When I left that job, then then when I began, I had a few more transition jobs and eventually I crawled and scraped and and clawed my way forward until I had bare minimum Excel, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: bare minimum accounting, Mm -hmm. bare minimum understanding of cash flow statements and, and business analysis and was able to make my way eventually. To to as I said, what I consider safe territory, mm-hmm. Argus, meaning a, a a very good platform
1: to develop those skills. So it, it was a bridge, and the doubt mm-hmm. was there. It was there, yeah. It, particularly then, I imagine the nineties. The conversation about alternative careers from academia wasn't um, as as vibrant, not really as vibrant as, as it is today, right? So I can imagine yeah, I, that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I when I started, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Circling back to my academic friends and academic organizations, I was already well-situated in this career. Even I, over the last 10 or 15 years, the alternative careers panels at the professional mm-hmm. associations didn't exist 25 years ago. Right. Right. They may have existed 10 or 15 years ago, but everyone was scared to go. Mm-hmm. Now, the alternative careers panels at the professional associations, you know the one in our case, Patrick, sure. uh, mm-hmm. ACS or former AAA, right. it's very well attended mm-hmm. and it's not an embarrassment mm-hmm. to to show up at the Alternative Careers panel. And mm-hmm. in fact, you see now not only PhD students, uh, you see sometimes junior faculty who are in adjunct positions mm-hmm. who understand, have come to the realization later mm-hmm. rather than sooner that the lifetime of an adjunct position turns out to be uh, a bad idea. It turns out, and this is a topic I want to raise and maybe mm-hmm. now is a good point about risk taking, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if I may, if that's okay. Sure. Can we, yeah, okay. That's, yeah. So it turns out I could be fired by the time we finish recording this. I'm an employee at will, and most people in business are employees at will. We're recording this uh, 2.15 on a Friday. The email could be behind this screen that we're recording this on saying, it's Friday, it's the holiday season, that's when businesses tend to terminate people. Uh, you're, You're gone. I'm sorry, it didn't work out. And that's just in the nature of of business, and that I think is terrifying for a lot of people who have academic backgrounds. And Mm -hmm. I suppose it should be, but it's it's sort of the norm in the world. And people go into academia. I I concluded uh, tend to be risk averse, Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. They. And they choose academia or come to the conclusion that academia, because you have these structured jobs, tenure track mm-hmm. jobs, stable businesses, the universities themselves, that it's a low risk career. Granted, they all know it's also a low financial mm-hmm. career uh, a range, but it's a low risk career. Mm-hmm. And that business is a high risk career, higher rewards, but higher risk. And they're more or less comfortable with risk taking. General, it becomes a low risk if you get tenure at least, right? It becomes very low risk if you get tenure, uh, really they have to shut down the whole department to get rid of you. So, that's the, that's the goal for a lot of people, if they get tenure, they're in good shape. Yeah, they're not going to make uh, a mint, but it, it's a very secure job. And I think it's psychologically people who are inclined towards that are the same people who are inclined towards that, uh, to mm. be circular, mm. that is they go into academia. I want to question that logic. Mm. Because if you're 40 years old and an adjunct professor, did you end up in a low risk career? No, you did of course, not. You of ended up in a very high risk career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while, yeah, the business world is is at risk, um, I think people, too many people in academia, delude themselves into thinking that it is a uh, low risk career. If you get tenure at a good mm-hmm. university mm-hmm. or are very Energetic teacher in a teaching uh, uh, position, and and you know have the energy necessary to do that, and you become indispensable to the institution. That's also low risk. That's that Mm -hmm. works. I get it. But there are are more people there than than do get more people in the in the system than get tenure at R ones and and are super teachers and and really derive great pleasure and job security from teaching. And they've ended up making what they thought was a low risk decision and ended up being a high risk decision. So I, I don't think the business community is quite as bad as it seems from a risk perspective yeah. because I, I think there's a f- some to some degree a false sense of job security and risk in academia that I don't I don't know that's there.
1: And of course, you think about risk every day as part of your job, right? So uh, there's
0: hundred percent it's hundred ten percent of my job. I, yeah. I, I thought about uh, at an earlier stage in my career, you think about doing things, you you have certain mm-hmm. tasks. At this point in my career, I, I sit back and think about, okay, all of this system is in progress.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: what could go wrong? Mm-hmm. what could go wrong? Mm-hmm. what can go wrong? The, uh, I have people now doing the things that need to get done and I have to sit and and figure out think about risk. And it's probably that reaching that point in my career which made me think back, you know uh, there's a flaw in the academic reasoning uh, mm-hmm. than to think that it's a low risk career. In fact, if you look at mm-hmm. it from a flow perspective, a mechanical mm-hmm. system perspective, all those adjunct profs represent a high risk of course. Of your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: But I think it's also important to notice that the the academia has become higher and higher risk as we speak. Uh, it's it's very different even today than it was 20 30 years ago right In in in, in, oh, in you yeah. know it's structured um, uh, the faculty uh, permanent faculty versus versus adjunct so yeah you're absolutely right
0: and there are departments that are shutting down and you know f- uh, uh, school, even places where tenure is is Mm -hmm. not as tenured as it it might've been in previous decades. So risk is showing up in academia. I think that the best thing psychologically for people in academia is to just acknowledge it and if they want that risk, that's great, but to pretend it's not there, I don't Mm -hmm. think is the the right psychological
1: approach. Sure. And I'd like to connect this question towards the end actually, because maybe there's something to be said about how departments can address this question. Oh, and, and I I just wanted to talk very quickly and, and so again, jumped out at me from your earlier comment. Uh, and, uh, well, that was, um, uh, this issue of self-confidence and uh, it, you know, you, you moved club uh, shows into this without realizing maybe this adventure will be, I wonder if, you know, part of the package of becoming a PhD is actually, you know, this. This ability to muster self confidence. You yeah, know, you've written a book. You've you've gone through a number of defenses. You've you've know, fielded so many questions, uh, and so you've 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 acquired a certain amount of thick skin that maybe makes you think if you did this, you can do anything and it's not a bad thing, what's your, yeah. what's your Yeah. I, I, I agree. And I
0: would refer to it as a different term of business. i not just called project management. If you have yeah. finished a PhD, right. guess what? You have a certificate in project management. You saw mm-hmm. a project through uh, definition, conception, planning, mm-hmm. funding, right. uh, execution, measurement wrap-up. Uh, delivery to the deliverable to the customer, that is your mm-hmm. your, your your board, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there was a follow-on project for many PhDs of trying to get their, their book or at least several articles published. It Turns out that's project management. Mm-hmm. Skill. Mm-hmm. that's that's very uh, important. So uh, now a lot of academics have egos independent of their project management skills, yes. but in that's terms funny. of project management, yeah, when when the the guy hung up on me, uh, and his name's David Tritel. We'll call him because call him out. He's in Miami. He's kind of semi-retired, and, and as I said, a, a friend of mine uh, from Simmit Hellison and Eichner was the name of the air transport consultancy. They no longer exist. Uh, long ago purchased. Um, I just called up some others, and mm-hmm. you know, continued. I didn't. I wasn't dumb enough to realize, or smart enough. Excuse me. I wasn't smart enough to realize. You know, that's a hard no. Mm-hmm. I just, I just kept going because perhaps I had whether it was the academic self-confidence mm-hmm. or. The project management self confidence. Mm. If particularly in business, if it doesn't work with one client, don't mm-hmm. you don't give up. You yeah. just go to the next yeah. prospect yeah. and you keep yeah. you keep moving. And so, yeah, being a wallflower, <laughs> you're, you're, if you're a wallflower, you're probably not going to finish your PhD very successfully or right. very uh, quickly, mm-hmm. and that's a sign. If you do finish your PhD in reasonable time, in reasonable order, reasonable publications, you mm-hmm. have project management skills mm-hmm. that you can go out along mm-hmm. with the writing skills and the research skills and the communication skills that, that, that the right. world is in
1: desperate need of. The other thing that struck me when you were talking earlier about moving away from Soviet history, I mean, as a fellow Russianist, I have to say, I don't think to late nineteen nineties was arguably one of the most exciting. Times to be in the field just because of all the archives that we're opening and the things that you could do and possibly maybe the name that one could make for oneself based on these newly declassified archival resources, right? So, um, mm-hmm. but you say you know the, you were anticipating that this momentum would peter out um, in 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 a short period of time.
0: Yeah, I could have been wrong, but I, I think I was right actually. So I did catch the archive openings. I mean, I was kind of there on day one. It was a little bit earlier. I, I arrived for my uh, full IREX uh, year mm-hmm. in uh, September of 1991, and I uh, had substantially unfettered access to Communist Party archives, regional party archives, um, uh, central archives, and you know I didn't go into the the NKVD archives or the military archives that wasn't my topic but I got mm. I got really what uh, uh, Central party committee archives I was in 92 right. 91 92 93 94 so I was uh, very pleased with that uh, hopefully the the research uh, showed that uh, and it was an exciting time and a matter of fact even in the late 90s as I was making those two years that shall not be named or reviewed in great detail I actually did a couple months in business in Russia total mm-hmm. complete. Disaster, you disaster. Sorry, until It was serious. Yeah, we don't know it, it never happened. But boy, was it a mess. So uh, it was part of that <clears throat> two years of transition uh, between leaving uh, academia and and showing up at uh, um, Argus. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm uh, yeah. So it was a very interesting period. There were you know gunfights in the restaurants in the uh-huh. in the middle of right. of Moscow. I was there. I was you know ducking my head. Uh, but you were living he, in Broadway, too. The movies, right?
1: Yes. Uh, this
0: I, yeah, but I wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a good career situation. Uh, it was kind of chaos, mm-hmm. and so um, um, in September of 1998, uh, I, I left Russia. That little part of the experiment failed, and made my way back to the United States slowly, uh, and so uh, it was a very interesting time. But in terms of academic buildup, it wasn't. And I'm I'm others will know better than me. But in terms of positions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Tenured positions in modern Russian history, I do believe, despite the excitement of the 1990s, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken, and others can correct me, the the di- dynamism and marginal positions were already After Russia failed as the Cold mm-hmm. War, state, the Soviet Union failed, the marginal positions were moving to Middle Eastern studies and mm-hmm. Chinese studies. And frankly, yeah. they probably, with good reason, were moving yeah. uh, there. And so uh, the job prospects, despite the fact that Russia had now been become a very interesting non academic engagement, on the academic front, I I I, I sensed it was not going to be growing, and that's what mm-hmm. led to my decision.
1: Mm-hmm. Could you talk about what you did at Argus day to day?
0: Yeah, and and this is where the transition or the life of the mind, but in a maybe in a lesser sense, but the 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 skills that academics do bring to the table, and they undersell and don't realize that the business community. Any business community Mm -hmm. desperately needs those skills. Let's say your business is publishing a poetry magazine. Mm -hmm. You would think that it's all about the poetry. No, publishing a poetry magazine is a business. Mm -hmm. It needs people to get things done on time and -hmm. communicate about them. Mm -hmm. So now finance is also a business. It also needs people to get things done on time and communicate about them. Which is what historians do which is what historians do. So, whether you define your alternative career as government service, an NGO, a nonprofit, or the business community, the skills that uh, academics bring to the table uh, are uh, underappreciated. Again, clear writing, memo writing is not Mm -hmm. taught at Harvard Business School. It just isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it, who knows? But I doubt it. You don't. There's no evidence that it's taught there. Uh, University of Chicago, definitely not taught there. Mm-hmm. So the uh, those skills are really important. And a platform, a research platform. Even though the topic was the stock market and individual securities, you just do a lot of writing uh, mm-hmm. at, at Argus, and uh, I was doing a lot of writing at Federated internally for for internal. Mm-hmm. My 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 peers and supervisors. Uh, So if you're doing stock, if you're looking at a system, stock market's a system, Mm -hmm. and you're analyzing it. Yes, you're doing a lot of spreadsheet work, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, you have to communicate, summarize, and communicate and convince, persuade people that your view of the world is correct, your analysis is correct. You have to stand up in front of people, either write a memo or stand up and give a speech. Well, it turns out a lot of academics are not half bad at that. They—that That is their ability to write memos, to, to write, to put together a written argument. Again, their dissertation is an extended written argument. The summary uh, of uh, your dissertation is a, uh, a short written argument. Those are invaluable in business then, now, and in the future. It's an underappreciated skill. And that's something I think that uh, a, a lot of your listeners should Take to heart. It, mm-hmm. it, that's the good news. That skill set yeah. is there, and it's not taught in the business schools. That's that's very useful
1: information. Um, so maybe, um, and let's, okay, let's talk about you as a historian in finance, right? That's 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 a kind of a value added that you showcase yourself very often. There's an obvious connection, to our people at least, uh, between cultural history of the Soviet Union and being in finance finance analyst on top of the skills that you just mentioned, right? Like writing, communication, uh, critical thinking. But you found a collection between history in particular and build your and finance and really built your career around it, it seems. Yes, you made it part of your professional uh brand. so let's start with your first impressions of the industry. You walk into Uh, You know the the industry, uh, your first job. You start looking around. You think about it, and you mention your first impressions in your first coming book, the ownership dividend. You write that you were struck, quote, struck by how ageistical the investment profession is, with a few exceptions. You say most investors have limited time horizons, both forward and backward. How does it manifest to you, and where did you see an opportunity to change that?
0: Yeah. That, that's, a, that's a great question. Thank you for teeing that one up because that, that's kind of the fun part. I really enjoy being a historian in the capital markets mm-hmm. uh, for the reason that you just identified. Uh, I, enter, I did not have the luxury of being a historian in the capital markets when I had those first few jobs, whether it was Argus, uh, early years at Federated, or those mm-hmm. transition jobs that shall not be named, I was way too busy scrambling. Yep. Scrambling, right. scrambling, scrambling. Memorizing, taking tests, the CFA exam, mm-hmm. uh, learning Excel, learning business. Uh, just memorize it, memorize it, memorize it. No, mm-hmm. no reflection. Yeah. But once I was settled in, I had the opportunity as a historian to think. Well, you know, I, I'm as a historian. I, I always where would this come from? I'm really interested mm-hmm. in where things come from. Mm-hmm. that's why I went to sure. grad school in history. Where things come from? Why is this this way? And you apply now when you're in a professional historian environment. Everyone's doing the same thing, and that's the whole purpose of the exercise. When you're Uh in business, nobody's doing that, Uh and it becomes very interesting. And you Uh have a set of rules. For instance, I had to very quickly memorize a set of rules to get Mm -hmm. credentials in the industry, the CFA exam. Okay, that's Chartered Certified Chartered Financial Analyst. Uh, They changed Mm -hmm. the name a couple decades ago. Uh, So I quickly memorized the rules. I didn't ask where they came from. I had to memorize them. If I was going to hmm. be serious in the career, I had to memorize those rules. But once I was settled, I started asking where those rules come from. Hmm. I started reading as a, a historian where those rules came from, and I asked the question as a historian might: Well, why did those rules, those formulas, why why were they developed? Who developed them, and why? And there's mm-hmm. there is a, a literature on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, as a historian, yes, well, those. Rules in the case of a book I wrote in 2018 called "Getting Back to Business" about modern portfolio theory, those rules were written in the 1950s and 60s mm-hmm. to fix some very serious problems from the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. That's why those rules were developed. And so how, how what was the implication of that of the insight? Well, actually, the, the insight was that in the 19 in the 2020s the 20 teens you have to ask yourself as an investor do those rules still apply right are they still necessary they were fixing problems from 1920s and 1930s well those problems in the 1920s and 1930s don't exist anymore they were fixed yeah. in the 1950s and 60s right so the rules were irrelevant the rules were dated. Also, mm-hmm. if you remember, the 1950s and 60s was the high watermark of social science, of mm-hmm. human beings being machines, part of systems in equilibrium, mm-hmm. rational, uh, uh, maximizing, uh, utility maximizing creatures, fully rational. The um, New York, you know who Robert Moses is. It was the height of the Robert Moses age. Robert mm-hmm. Moses was an urban developer who knew better than everyone else He was going to create modernity for New Yorkers. It turned out to be mm-hmm. a disaster. Mm-hmm. But he had the confidence, the Apollo confidence, Apollo meaning sending men to the moon. Uh, problems can be the, the uh, who was the head of Ford? Uh, McNamara. Uh, McNamara's confidence at Ford. Uh, y- there are social science answers to, uh, and this, McNamara became Secretary of Defense in tragically as a war. Uh, the, social science answers and mechanical answers, physics answers for human problems. Mm -hmm. So the rules that are now being applied in the stock market, we're we're taping this at 2.30 on an afternoon, the stock market's Mm -hmm. open. The rules that are being applied are really from the height of 1960s social science overconfidence about mm-hmm. the ability to master the human condition.
1: So it was, in my interpretation. It was a so, monument to an error in some ways. There's
0: a monument to an error, and guess what? Those rules are still being applied right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And for me as an investor, as a business person, I was saying, well, mm-hmm. you know what? Yeah, I see the they fixed the 1920s and 30s uh, problem, bravo, congratulations. But I'm not really sold on this 1950s and 60s mastery of the human condition. Uh, I'm I'm gonna do something different than mm-hmm. I feel actually is more uh, historically normal rather than historically anomalous, mm-hmm. and that literally led to the investment style that I happen to to work in a mm-hmm. very specific mm-hmm. right now it's kind of a boutique style, but at one time it was the norm. It got pushed aside by all of uh, a number of phenomena. That's the topic of the book coming out mm-hmm. uh, your Valentine's Day gift to your sweetheart coming out on February fourteenth. Uh, uh, as to what happened in the last couple of decades and and why it's historically anomalous and therefore from an investment perspective also why you may want to consider investing Mm -hmm. in a different fashion than what you've been doing the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's really placing these frameworks in historical context. I would argue Mm -hmm. as an extension of that, and just kind of for the sake of conversation on a podcast level, that if you're a brain surgeon, you want to know really know not only what the current best practices are, Mm -hmm. but you also want to know where they came from and how they evolved. If Mm -hmm. you're a plumber, you want to know... Now, this is a stretch, but just bear with me. If you're a plumber, Mm -hmm. you also want to know the history of plumbing, things Mm -hmm. that have been tried, things that have worked, things that have failed, things that didn't work. Mm -hmm. As you encounter new problems, in plumbing and supply materials, water, in design of systems, etc. Mm-hmm. Knowing the history of any system that you happen to be part of is can be you know, helpful. Pre- can be helpful. Doesn't matter what mm-hmm. the system is. And uh, in finance, not much of that going around. And that has become sort of a, a, a base of a, a business for me is uh, appealing to those customers who are more comfortable with this. I'll call it historically validated approach rather than what is currently the the norm, which I don't think is going to last much longer. It's had 30 years. I don't think it's going to last much longer. So, it does have practical implications as mm-hmm. to how you, you
1: you run a business. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about uh, your book. and Maybe we could uh, push this question a little further, if you don't mind uh, unveiling your argument. You, you're right, and I had the pleasure of reading the preview of your book that historical, this relationship between companies, and their owners was based on dividends, cash payments based on profits. Uh, but the cash relationship has been waning in the U S for, uh, for three decades now, it seems. And so the question is why did the practice of, uh, dividends, diminish in popularity, and why do you yeah. think that it will, it should come back?
0: Yeah, so uh, I don't know how many of your regular audience will be super interested in this, but we'll we'll do this detour and see how it goes. Um, it, it really, we had a moment in time, really, from 1980 to 2020, uh, and some of this is social science. There's a chapter on geopolitic, uh, geopolitics, which I sh- would interest uh, uh, some of your, your your audience, but there was a this coincidence in time that created. I'm not gonna call it a perfect storm, but a a paradigm. That's been very successful, by the way, and from a financial perspective, uh, not so certain if it's if it will be judged as kindly uh, in future decades. But you had a bunch of things occurring all at once. First was the decline in interest rates. The older listeners uh, uh, and younger listeners who will look it up will know, and they may not even know what interest rate is. But take my word for it; it was very, very high in the late seventies and early eighties, mm-hmm. uh, peaked in nineteen eighty one for the type of interest rate that matters to my business, and then it it, it Came down for 40 years, uh, and and bottomed in September of of 2020. So 40 years of declining interest rates that has profound implications on risk decision making. We're talking about decision making risk on the business world. That interest rate is a proxy for risk, and if you have interest rates going down for 40 years, that means people are taking more and more risk. And I would argue making worse decisions, but others could debate that but no one can can uh, disagree about um, uh, risk coming down over that time period mm-hmm. uh, the second framework of that something kind of inside baseball called uh, share buybacks which have uh, uh, we won't get into it I'll just say they became Legal or more legal. They were legal before, but they became more legal in 1982. An SEC rule mm-hmm. and uh, buybacks have basically displaced dividends. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third thing is NASDAQ and all that wonderful innovation coming from Silicon Valley. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of startup companies—they're not supposed to pay dividends, nor should they. That's fine. Uh, but NASDAQ grew and kind of took over, took over the whole stock market. And and uh, we read about them and hear about them—the Magnificent Seven or the Fangs—all these, uh, all the big tech companies that that you're aware of. They they. Emerged on the scene in this period. The part that's geopolitically relevant and, and is the uh, maybe more directly relevant to a social scientist or, or a humanities person is what happens in 1979. Dong Xiaoping comes to power in China. Margaret Thatcher is elected in, in Great Britain. In 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes elected. Is elected in the United States, and you usher in the period of what is now called uh, global neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. And global neoliberalism is characterized by globalization. Uh, deregulation, uh, uh, the unfettered march of capital. Uh, as a practical matter, it means your little widget mm-hmm. is made in China and sold to you in Walmart in an incredibly deflationary or uh, cost a lot low cost manner. Mm-hmm. And that happened for forty years. the The consequences: you get lots of widgets from China, uh, and you can fill your house with them. the The negative consequence was the the industrial. Heartland got wiped out. The middle class really took it on the chin in this country, the working middle class and the industrial middle class. But um, in terms of consumption, in terms of the stock market, in terms of innovation and technology, very, very successful period. It looked like Francis Fukuyama, who your, mm-hmm. your listeners will know, was right. And uh, uh, all's well that ends well, and this ended well, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of that self-confidence and reality came to a crashing explosive end over the last several years. You could argue it started with 2016 with with Donald Trump, but let's just say 2020, mm-hmm. uh, with COVID in China ending the supply chain, 2022, with Russia invading Ukraine and ruining Fukuyama's party, mm-hmm. uh, and uh 2021, or 2016, or or today with Donald Trump and the, the division of the United States and the end of a consensus that we even need a consensus in this country that, that, um, whatever we were doing in the past was, is worth agreeing on, et cetera. There's, there's no agreement. And we see that every day in the news in this country right now. So there is no consensus, in, uh, among kind of the investing community or the policy community as to, to what goes forward and whether the Republic is even a good idea. We'll find out next year. Mm. Um, so, uh, this forty year period of of the march of of uh, capital of global neoliberalism uh, had a stock market consequence, back to my day job, of pushing dividends to the side. Okay. And for a lot of people, it worked really well that you just do harvested capital gains as share prices just went up and up and up and up, and you didn't really need a dividend anymore because if you needed to pay the rent or fund something, what we call fund consumption, uh, you just sold shares. The argument in the book is that interest rates have stopped going down the global supply chains make everything in China, that's come to an end.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Russia it's invaded Ukraine and shocked European sensibilities. Right. Donald Trump has destroyed any consensus in this country or is a reflection of the end of any consensus in this country. And mm-hmm. so that uh, I think that the risk premium or the risk attachment, the discounted cash flows, however you want to do it in an academic Mm -hmm. finance sense, but the amount of risk that you apply to an investment is going up. It had been going down for decades.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And the, the cash nexus, which had been erased from stock investments in the United States, I think it's going to come back. And that's Mm -hmm. basically the argument. Now, I am talking my book of business, so full disclosure, my day job is dividend-based. And uh, this basically argues that dividends are going to be a more prominent part of the stock market. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that's the the argument based on a historical analysis of how anomalous the last 30 or 40 years have been.
1: Right. And it's interesting uh, for me, even though most people, you know, aren't finance experts uh, among the audience, but it's an interesting case study of how historical thinking can be applied to uh, essentially practical ends, right? Uh, I mean, you, you make those, you use the language of history, you talk about structures, you talk about narratives, you give analogies, you talk about, you know, how, you um, how, how cash essentially has been the next you know the, this this uh, essence of the relationship uh between companies and and owners for most of the industry so let in okay it's been it's been than an exception right yeah and the best way best way to think about that is just anything outside the stock
0: market farmland, real estate your job uh you know uh how many people most people are paid in cash most owners of businesses take some sort of profit distribution in order to pay their own bills. Uh, Think about owning farmland, that the only way... Let's say you you, you buy farmland for 10 years, you're not allowed to take a single profit from the sale of the crops to pay your own bills. The only way you can benefit from it is if you sell the land. That's right. basically what a dividend-free stock is. Now, right. if the farmland is fallow or is troubled or is flooded, of course there's no dividend, mm-hmm. and you invest in the farmland to make it uh, productive again. Mm-hmm. But any business, like the McDonald's franchise, the bookstore down the street, uh, rental real estate—they mm-hmm. are all based on the health of that enterprise. Is all based on the cash flows from the enterprise, not mm-hmm. its price in the market, mm-hmm. and the. Anomalous outcome that we've seen in the last couple of decades for these large tech companies really, but many other companies as well, is that instead of measuring success in distributable cash flows the way other stock markets, other businesses, mm-hmm. real estate individual individuals in their professions uh, do is instead, no, you sell your stake in order to pay the rent on a monthly basis. It's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So that, That's been my assertion. Uh, it's kind of controversial because frankly everyone this historically based assertion, everyone in the stock market's pretty comfortable with how things have worked out the last couple of decades. I'm suggesting that's going to come to an end. I
1: was going to ask actually what's been the feedback that you've received so far based on you know the 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 sort of tease of your right. argument that the book is not yet, but I'm sure you've run the ideas by your friends and colleagues in the industry.
0: Well here here's a, a finance answer to that or an academic answer. Selection bias. <laughs> so i've been in, I've been in uh, this business, including writing for a long enough time that my 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 uh, my group of friends all agree with me <laughs> mm-hmm. and the people who are busy speculating in stocks aren't going to stop to read a book by a pers- by a dividend guy. they couldn't care less mm-hmm. um, so among the more conservative investors that I have found myself aligned with, they say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that all makes sense." Yeah, you know, maybe this, maybe that, but sure, and as a general notion. But the speculators yeah. uh, don't don't sure. we, we don't cross circle. So part of the part of yeah. the uh, intent of publicizing a book of writing it is to get that out. Why well, I refer to my audience as practitioners, they tend to be the financial advisors, and mm-hmm. the financial advisors really do. Have a vested interest in understanding where things are going to go because right. they look bad if they get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be a little bit more open minded. Now, most investors uh, choose their type of investment and kind of stick with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's their style. But financial advisors who are working on behalf of I don't know, retirees or people who, don't want to think about the stock market, they have to be open-minded to paradigm shifts. Uh, and and uh, so they're, they're really my target audience uh, in t- to explain to them. And uh, we'll see how the reception has gone. It tends to be a selection bias uh, mm-hmm. exercise, meaning those financial advisors that are more conservative, they nod their head and said, yeah, I get it. Those that want to know where the next IPO is coming from or the next stock that's going to be a so-called 10 bagger, they, they don't have the time of day for me.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I you know, based on what you're saying, it really sounds like uh you know, you know putting in evidence, what you your know, assertion that you made uh, uh, earlier about the intellectual life in finance being a realm because you have to think about so many things, you really think about the whole way and how it functions and and the structure of it and where it's going and where it's been. So it's it's really in many ways like being an historian, except there are some practical state, stakes attached to it, right?
0: Yeah, and the, the other, you know, senior people in the firm, they do the same thing I do. They sit around and think about risk, mm. and they think about paradigm change and they think about they have to make investment decisions. Some think about risk as you know what could go wrong. That's uh, you know, mm. others are also thinking about structurally where is this business heading, mm. whatever it is—the poetry publishing business, the brain surgery business, the plumbing business, or the investment business. Right. They have to think about where's this heading, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. You know, how do we position ourselves to be there to con- to continue to exist, mm-hmm. as it were, and prosper? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how a lot of senior executive time is thought. It is the life of the mind. It is structural thought. It's not just you know what do we do today. It's mm-hmm. it's what do we do over the next decade? Right. Okay. So I'll, I'll,
1: true. Uh, let's come back to this question of risk. Uh, that you mentioned at the very beginning because I remember, and you mentioned that when we talked last time, um, when I reached out to you first, uh, you are of the opinion that um, academics, you know, have had certain experiences hiring academics, PhDs, and you're the opinion that they are a self-selected group who are averse to risk my, my nature. <laughs> I wonder if there's a way that you know there is this group. Uh, that you might amount, but there's also a group that simply doesn't doesn't realize how to capitalize on, you know, on on a certain level of um, of immunity or of, of you know um, of being able to take the risk in a certain way. they don't want to go to the structure outside academia and they stay in academia simply because they don't know that they have the tools they they can use somewhere else. So the question is do you think it might be a possibility, and what can departments and the individuals themselves do in order to sort of broaden yeah. their horizons when they consider their future careers?
0: Yeah, and I think that, let me see if I can kind of summarize my recommendations. Some have already been stated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start with the risk one, and that's more psychological, mm-hmm. uh, but I think knowing is better than not knowing. And so, if you are in academia or going into academia or considering leaving academia, just be aware of this risk profile and know where you stand. You right. you know yourself better than anyone else. Are you comfortable with? Or are you not comfortable with risk? I can't fix that, but you will handle it better at least knowing where you are on that spectrum. Right. And uh, I think I had never even considered the nature of risk. Hmm. And so I think just calling it out helps, uh, and it, it's more of a Personal dialogue and inner dialogue with with you, but to realize also take the big picture that being in academia can also be risky, uh, and and just making peace with the fact that being in business or outside of academia there is risk. It's not the end of the world. Most people find a way, mm-hmm. uh, and it can be, you know, there can be some uh, antacids, uh, some abysmal along the way. Uh, it can be it can be frightening. It it was frightening. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, dispiriting. But mm-hmm. that it can be worked out. Everyone kind of figures it out at the end where their right risk tolerance is. Right. But if you artificially limit yourself to uh, that, you want so-called no risk. You're you're going to end up in a very risky situation. Ancient. So right. I think the solution there is not a solution. It's just
1: it's just awareness. There are and trying things, things out letting yourself try things out where you don't have as much to lose as, as maybe you, you would live as you perceive. And it. and talk yeah. it out and you know
0: yeah. realize it just just realizing mm-hmm. it so that's point one the risk is there just acknowledge it uh, and uh, I think you'd be better uh, positioned to deal with risk when it materializes the other mm-hmm. stuff is pretty straightforward mm-hmm. uh, I hate to be so incredibly simple about it but but Excel or sheets uh, right. Is 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 worth learning? I would tell you, and again, this is more on the business side. But accounting is a language. Now, all of us in the social studies, social sciences, humanities, we have to learn languages of various sorts. So we, I, I had to learn Russian, and you know, had to have a reading ability of some basic reading ability of German and French, uh, but had to be pretty good in Russian. Accounting is a language. It's not a very hard language. It's pretty. It's tourist Spanish. It really is. Accounting can be done on Duolingo, not mm-hmm. on Duolingo, you get my point, but it can be right. turned, you know, Chan Academy or, yeah. or whatever. Uh, what I uh, take a LinkedIn
1: course or something, LinkedIn, quiz, whatever, right? yeah.
0: and uh, uh, an online course, YouTube, um, uh, an accounting for dummies book. It is, you can learn to order coffee and a meal in a restaurant that helps because it helps you pretty quickly understand enterprises, even if they're nonprofits or government enterprises,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, or doing something on your own or a business, it helps you just understand how things are, are flowing in that business. It just mm-hmm. provides better understanding of the structure of the system. It's an academic approach. You do not need an ac- accounting degree. You mm-hmm. do not need to be a CPA. Mm-hmm. But just some basic understanding of accounting, and it can be done in a non-certified way, meaning If you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, you can do a LinkedIn course. You can, you know, a couple nights a week, et cetera. And that helps enormously. Mm -hmm. The other kind of self-evident or not to me self-evident, but not uh, maybe uh, from the outside, from an academic perspective is a course or just a book on, I hate to say this, pop psychology. You'd be stunned the amount of business decisions that were made out of a psychology 101. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we are humans. I mean, there are lots of people trying to set up business, uh, computer-based networks where you get the human out, investment businesses yeah. and others. To some extent, blockchain is uh, a, a, a way of getting rid of trust systems. You get rid of people by uh-huh. uh, making it just computer to computer and so forth. That's, that's fine. Uh-huh. But the people who set up the, the blockchain or the people uh-huh. who set up the algorithms for uh, quantitative investment, uh-huh. they have personalities. And uh, a I have found it helpful to just have a, a superficial familiarity Green with advice. normal yeah. and abnormal psychology. You're right. going to run into both. Mm-hmm. And frankly, if you're in academia, you're going to run into a lot more abnormal psychology. Right. So even if you're staying, it can't hurt to understand the system. Now, again, mm-hmm. the academics... Description of psychology is probably woefully out of date and inaccurate, but it's at mm. least a starting point
1: yeah. uh, to, to understand it's things. Management is psychology. You deal with management people. Is selling is psychology. You're selling yeah. to people you want them to buy the product, right? So it only yeah. makes sense to sort of read a textbook yeah. and figure out the basic reactions of... Of people, and when you're running a, a meeting, when you're in a meeting
0: with your peers, superiors, or the people who report to you, you need to know yeah. the meeting. A all meetings, you should know what the outcome of the meeting is before before you go in. That's <laughs> preparation. But in order to achieve that goal, you have to understand the psychology of the participants. You don't have to have a degree in it. Again, you just have to have some mm-hmm. bit. You have to think about it. It's not cut and dried. Here's what we're mm-hmm. going to do. It's what does that my counterpart think that we're going? How does he perceive mm-hmm. or he or she perceive what we're going to do? And mm-hmm. how can I present it so that he or she perceives it to be in their right. interest as well? That's that's so, great advice. Yeah. Yeah. So basic psych, basic accounting. Right. Excel. I hate to mm-hmm. say, I mean to reduce a business career 25 years, What you usually, well, uh, take an Excel course, an accounting course, and a site course and you'll be fine. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, you have to have an interest, you yeah. have to have you know interest in, in various things. But even if you don't have an interest, you, those three are some very simple things that you can do. The other ones that I'm taking for granted, but if you don't have them, are the writing and presentation and speaking right. skills. And they're mm-hmm. really in short supply. Not mm-hmm. everyone in academia is comfortable uh, in pu- with public speaking. They are likely to have those than you know, Excel in and, and Psychology 101. Yeah. Behind that. yeah so yeah. I'm going to assume, because in my experience, I have a s- seen that almost everyone coming out of an academic environment. Has those skills, but mm-hmm. should not uh, uh, underweight them or, or discount them. They they are are, are really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is um, this is more internet related. You know, if you are going to consider a career transition or moving out, start writing about it. Start researching it on your own. Don't wait. They're not going to come to you. Not going to mm-hmm. find you. And the internet allows you to do that. Um, mm-hmm. You make yourself uh, a friend of mine quoting someone else on the internet says, if you do something on the internet for well for five years, by the end mm-hmm. of the five-year period, you're going to be one of the few people still doing it, meaning you mm-hmm. as, uh, basically take intellectual market share. Right. I don't know if that's exactly
1: true, but the, the concept I think is a good one. So way. leverage the internet in a way that one couldn't have done 50 years ago, basically, yeah, because you, you have to go out, through all those.
0: You reach out to people. Mm-hmm. LinkedIn is, uh, You compare Twitter to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a really Positive for now. Mm. Resource Twitter is really mm. not so much, uh, but it's it's professional. It's content based. It can be very trivial. People announcing their job anniversaries, but but LinkedIn is still a platform for meaningful connection. I take LinkedIn seriously. Uh, I I view. Uh, you know, I have a, a Twitter account. I use it, and I'm trying mm-hmm. to promote my book. And I, hopefully, I won't be canceled and find my account turned off uh, when this publicizes. That's fine. But it, Twitter, even even the new owner of Twitter understands it's it's changed uh, over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. But it was always a, a very different environment of communication than 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 LinkedIn has become. Mm-hmm. And there are other platforms that are emerging as well. But you, people have websites blogs substack right. uh, if if you are going if you have a passion about something start Start mm-hmm. researching, writing it, and and communicating about it, and then you use that as the thin edge of the wedge to move into whatever your passion is. Again, mm-hmm. it could be I really want to publish poetry journals, and mm-hmm. I'm really good at it. Mm-hmm. You just go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be you know uh, transitioning from you know medieval literature to to Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, this the skills that I'm talking about are relevant even for mm-hmm. non finance uh, careers. Uh, uh, but we, we now have the, the internet. Uh, the internet's not entirely a bad thing. Let's
1: put it that right. way. It is a platform for people to develop and change their careers. And of course, you have a very interesting um, blog that uh, I was able to read several entries from it, where you apply different kind of historical concepts and uh, and frameworks to to finance. Uh, so that's that's you know for I'll definitely mention it to people. We promote this podcast too.
0: Yes, uh, thank you. So you can. I'm happy to, uh, particularly with. Uh, uh, academics and and former academics uh, on LinkedIn on my website, which is more business related. But I put stuff on Russian history there on uh, strategicdividendinvestor.com. It's just because it was the it was the website that I took 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And if I had to do that all over again, I probably would have chosen something less narrow, but it is what it is. So there there are posts on Russian history, Russian demographics, for instance, uh, uh, on, on strategicdividendinvestor.com. <laughs> it is what it is. And I, I'm on a lot of the traditional social
1: media uh, with the handle History Investor. So last question, if I may. What is it that is there anything that in particular you'd like to do in the future that you haven't done already that maybe connects history and finance in some way?
0: Right now, I just finished the book. I'm exhausted. I'm promoting the book, which is even more exhausting. The book is a historical account of of the U.S. stock market in 2018. I wrote a historical critique of modern portfolio right. theory. So two intersections of history and finance right it's now, I don't have the next project in <laughs> mind. I, I'm going to say, uh, I, I I may even take a slight break. Um, I am interested, uh, this would be more on the side, not on a professional basis, but uh, the uh, revisiting the Russia and the West question, <laughs> right. uh, the Russia and the West question appeared to have been 12, settled by, settled by the academics 20, 30 years ago, and um, uh, people took the victory laps. Martin Molly had already passed away, but you know, kind of proven mm. right, and Fukuyama kind of proven right, and everyone's just trying to figure out how that works out, the details, and it was all going to be fine, mm. and guess what? It didn't work out that way, mm. So, uh, and now there are a lot more people who are not academics who have a vested interest in understanding Russia and the West, because there's basically a war going on, a proxy war between the West right. and Russia right now. And um, I think there's room to explain uh, to non-academics in non-academic journals, not mentioning Martin mm. Malia or the academics, um, that uh, that why does Russia appear to behave in a peculiar fashion if you're not yeah. paying attention? It appears to be peculiar. Right. If you're a specialist, it's you sort of... Okay, I get it. Uh, it. Didn't work out exactly the way, but we understand what's going on. But for mm-hmm. the non-specialists who are footing the bill, paying the taxes, and are voting about these things, uh, I think a, a a better explainer than is currently available on in a non-academic setting about uh, the relationship that Russia and the West has had, West has had with itself, the relationship the West has had with right. Russia and Russia with right. the West, right. et cetera, right. is that there's room for that. If if you know, uh, if I had time for that, that would be the project I would want to pursue now just because it's in the news. So there are horizons to be exploring uh, for all the most reasons, but but it's, it's all but all
1: it's worth work to do. Reasons, yeah, right. Yeah.
0: I do have a day job, and, and for everyone listening, I, I plan to stick with my day job. But uh, to the extent <laughs> I have any extra time, uh, uh, that, that would be what I'd be working you
1: on. with. Thank you very much for, for this conversation. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Patrick, thank you for having me on the show.